Welcome to the latest episode of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. We have made it to episode 50 of this podcast, dealing with episode 49 of the X-Files, the season 2 finale, Anasazi. Anasazi originally aired on May 19th, 1995, and it's got an average IMDb user score of 9.3 out of 10, making it the highest rated episode of the series. This one has numerous locations for the action to take place. A fairly large chunk of it takes place in New Mexico, but we also have scenes that take place in Delaware, New York, Japan, Italy, Germany, and Maryland. Well, at least not, I suppose not technically Italy, it's the Italian representative in the UN building in the city of New York. But this is the first time in the series that we've really gotten a scope of the global extent of this conspiracy. The pre-credits teaser once again does not involve either Mulder or Scully. Instead, it's a Native American family where the youngest generation, a teenage boy, finds something in the desert after an earthquake. It appears to have uncovered a boxcar that's been buried, and inside that boxcar he finds what appears to be the corpse of an alien. His grandfather tells him to put it back because they will be coming, and things start to snowball from there. We've got Mulder in his apartment building where... One of his neighbors ends up shooting her husband of 30 years while the lone gunmen are there paying him a visit. A hacker known as The Thinker has stolen all of the defense department's files on everything that the U.S. government knows about aliens and the existence of extraterrestrials, and he would like to get that information to Mulder with the help of the lone gunman. Mulder hasn't been sleeping well. We see him taking headache pills, you know, and washing them down with a glass of water from his sink. He gets to work and ends up assaulting Skinner after rumor gets out that he's received the files, which he has on a tape. He reveals that information to Scully, who recognizes that the files aren't gibberish or really encrypted. They're encoded in Navajo. So she starts putting things in motion to get in touch with a Navajo code talker who can help them translate the files. This episode also sees the return of Alex Krychek, who appears specifically to kill Mulder's father and possibly frame Mulder for that murder. Uh, it's Scully's intervention, actually by shooting Mulder, that makes that evidence possible so that Mulder isn't quite framed for his father's killing. She also renders him unconscious after discovering the chemical compounds that are being pumped into his entire building by people trying to get to him and push him over the edge, and keeps him sedated and knocked out for 36 hours while she drives him to New Mexico so that the psychotropics can get out of his system long enough for him to recover. And while he's in that New Mexico desert, he ends up going with that youngest child to go see what was uncovered in the desert. And he finds a box car full of these bodies. And while he's talking to Scully on the phone, we are learning that her name is in these files in some of the more recent entries, along with words like vaccine and merchandise. So it appears that the U.S. government was trading in aliens and experimenting on them using Axis scientists post-war. So this, personally... This is the episode that changed my mind about the X-Files. Instead of watching something when it was convenient and happened to be on, to must-see TV. And this was the tipping point for a lot of people. Particularly since the episode ends with the cigarette smoking man tracking Mulder down in the desert. When Mulder refuses to speak to him, the cigarette smoking man firebombs the boxcar that Mulder's in. So this ends with massive flames coming out of the boxcar where we last saw Agent Mulder buried under the desert. Now, we mentioned before that desert is one type of terrain that they weren't able to easily reproduce in Vancouver. And yet this looks like the New Mexico desert with all the vibrant reds and oranges in the rocks. 
That's because they actually rented a quarry in classic Doctor Who style, but they didn't just rent the rock quarry. The art department went there days in advance and started painting the rocks. Apparently they went out for a kilometer in every direction and painted the rocks red. They painted all the rocks in the quarry to the point that between takes, they had people who had to go out onto the location and turn overturned rocks back over. As Mulder's climbing down, if you watch his feet, you'll see he actually kicks some of the rocks over and the natural color is exposed. So this entire quarry was painted and they had to reset between takes to make sure it was the painted side up all the way. So, you know, people joke about how Doctor Who was cheap because it was filming in rock quarries. I can't imagine that paying people to paint a kilometer radius of rocks and cliffs, as well as a quarry full of individual rocks, is going to be particularly cheap. Especially since... There was no boxcar there to begin with, but they had to make sure it looked well buried for the story. It had to be something that was just barely exposed by the earthquake. So they had to use demolition and blasting to carve a hole in the bottom of the quarry, bury the boxcar in it, and then recover the boxcar with the painted rocks and the red dust. So this was not a cheap episode to do. Now, it was directed by Bob Goodwin. We've seen his directorial work previously in the Erlenmeyer Flask in one breath. We will see it again. This is his third of nine directing credits on the X-Files. He also served as producer throughout the run of the series. Now, it was co-written by David Duchovny and Chris Carter. Chris Carter was inspired by hearing the story of the Anasazi tribe that disappeared years ago in Arizona and started thinking, well, why would that happen? And David Duchovny worked with him on the story to figure out how to connect it, to make it a little more personal and raise the stakes to make it feel like a season finale, which is why we see people targeting Mulder with you know, the drugs hooked up to his building's water supply with the death of his father. That's where this was targeted. So this is David Duchovny's first co-writing credit. He gets a story credit on this with Chris Carter, and Chris Carter gets the teleplay credit. He will eventually get more credits in here. He ends up with five story credits and three script credits in the course of the series. On the flip side, Chris Carter steps in front of the camera and has a bit of an acting cameo. So there is a scene in which Scully's being interrogated by her superiors, which also works as a nice summary for those people who've been watching this the series now who had not been previously watching it, because the ratings were climbing due to word of mouth, and people were jumping on. So there's individuals who hadn't seen the first part of season one, or any of season one, who were now regular watchers in season two. So you get a quick recap of their initial relationship in this meeting, and part of this coming from an agent played by Chris Carter, who asks Scully, you know, why are you referring to him as your partner? Weren't you originally assigned to Mulder to debunk the X-Files? Now, I've seen interviews with Chris Carter where people are crediting him with inventing the word debunk, which was a surprise to him as far as he's concerned. It was a word and it was in regular use. It actually did show up in a lot of shows after this episode. If you watched other TV at the time, you could tell that the writers were watching the X-Files and they liked the, the term, because it did show up in a number of other shows over the next five to ten years. But he didn't invent the word. I've heard it used in the December 17th, 1949 episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, titled The Haiti Adventure, in exactly the same context. So it may be regional slang, but it's certainly a word that was around prior to Chris Carter's usage of it. So he will appear again on screen in both the X-Files as the TV series, in the I Want to Believe film, and in The Loved Gunman but this is his most prominent acting spot. Now, one of the actors that we have guest starring in this episode, and I think the one that's most notable, is Floyd Red Crow Westerman. In this one, he plays Albert Hosteen, who is both the grandfather 
of the boy who found the bodies and the Navajo code talker that gets involved in translating the documents. He's got quite the acting career that dates back to an episode of MacGyver in 1988. Following that, he was also in Renegades, Dances with Wolves, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, L.A. Law, The Doors, Murder, She Wrote, Northern Exposure, several episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger as Uncle Ray Firewalker, Roseanne, Baywatch Nights, Millennium. This is his first of five appearances on The X-Files. He would also appear in Darman Gregg, Judging Amy, and his final appearance was Swing Vote, which was released in 2008. He passed away on December 13th, 2007. We also see Renee Morisot in here. We saw her previously as Gwen Goodensnake in Shapes. She appears as Josephine Doan, who's the first person that Scully manages to get in contact with in terms of translating these files. This is her final X-Files appearance of her two. Canadians might also know her as Ellen Kennedy from 42 episodes of North of 60. If you're not Canadian, you've probably never heard of North of 60, and it's... Not necessarily worth tracking down. It's not bad, just not spectacular. Now, Nick Lee has returned. He was originally planned to play Crycheck for just a three-episode stint, and it was David Duchovny's idea to bring him back. He found Nick to be a nice guy, easy to work with, and you know thought that his character could use some more growth and more opportunity to appear as a hitman. And, of course, like a lot of actors at that stage in their careers, Nick Lee was perfectly happy to have a recurring gig. So one of the other things that this episode does for the first time, not just bringing in David Duchovny as one of the contributing writers or putting Chris Carter on screen as an actor, the tagline at the end of the opening credits, the truth is out there, changes to tie it in with the context of the episode. The truth is out there was actually translated into Navajo, and that's the way it was displayed in the opening credit sequence. Now those opening credit tags will change at several points throughout the course of the series usually just for one-offs, but this is one of the cases in which it was changed. So this is one of the episodes that really made not just the industry stand up and take notice, because we know that was already happening, but this is one that started to make viewers and fans start to take notice, and the word of mouth was starting to spread, and we're starting to get a lot of momentum behind this series. Apparently killing off the main character in that season finale had just a major, major impact on audiences. I remember a lot of people talking about it that summer. I remember people coming into the back to school that fall who had just started watching the X-Files at all, asking people who'd been watching it longer, okay, what's happening? What do I need to know? Trying to get that information filled in because this is where the ball really got rolling. Now, in the long term, the episodes that I deal with that are specifically about the X-Files as a TV series, its movies, the Lone Gunman spinoff, the comic book seasons 10 and 11 spinoffs, and the recently announced revival series that starts in January will be discussed as they are now in every other week. Now, the off weeks, we're going to have some specials. So just as we did with the season one wrap up, next week, there's going to be a season two wrap up. We are also into the era when the other creators out there had taken enough notice of the X-Files that they were starting to make references to the X-Files. And starting to bring that in and make parodies of it in their shows. Now, in an ideal world, the first coverage of one of those parodies would also be next week's episode. I'd be doing those in release order too. Now, there was an episode of Weird Science in season three that spoofed the X-Files, and it was the first explicit parody that I'm aware of. Unfortunately, it was a season three episode. Seasons four and five have been made available to streaming audiences only, 
Seasons 1 and 2 were available on DVD. Season 3 has not been released, so it cannot be legally obtained. And I refuse to use any other method to obtain the episodes I'm going to be studying for this or any other podcast. So unfortunately, I will not be going into detail on that weird science episode. So the next spoof that we're going to see will be a reboot episode that will be discussed in podcast number 64 in the week between the coverage of War of the Coprophages and Syzygy. But in the meantime, Anasazi is just, it's a masterclass in building tension and getting things established quickly. We've got multiple plot threads running. We've got the international conversations that let you know the scope of this conspiracy very quickly and very easily. And we also have a mix of very short scenes and some extended scenes. Most hour-long TV series have 20 to 30 scenes in them. Now, it's not necessarily cuts. If we look at the teaser here, that's counted as one scene rather than three. There's a conversation in the home when the grandson wakes up. Then we see the grandson in the desert making his discovery. And then we see him return back home with the body he's discovered. That's not counted as three scenes. That's counted as one. So most hour-long dramas have 20 to 30 scenes. This episode has 17 scenes. And the first four or five of them are knocked out one after the other in the first few minutes. We've got this scene in the pre-credits teaser. Then we've got the scene where the thinker gets access to the data. Cut to the scene in Mulder's apartment where the lone gunman let him know about what's been stolen in terms of the data and the files and that the thinker wants to meet with him and introduce his neighbor who shot her husband. The next scene is Mulder getting the tape from the thinker. The next scene, Mulder in his office looking at the tape where Scully comes in. Cut from that scene to Mulder talking to Skinner, refusing to do it in Skinner's office and talking to him in the hallway and actually punching Skinner. Now, that's one of two notable fight scenes in this episode. This one, because they, the fight choreography was trying to figure out how to make this hallway fight look realistic. They had it staged, and you know you can practice looking at it. In order to make a punch look hard on a TV screen or a movie screen, you've got two options. You can actually punch the other actor, which is generally frowned upon, or you can time it and practice and choreograph it so that the person who's getting hit snaps their neck or their head hard to the side at the point of impact in a trick that would convince viewers who can't see exactly where the contact is made because of the camera angle that contact has been made. After a few takes of trying to choreograph it, they did one more take where Mitch Pileggi and David Duchovny were there, and Mitch Pileggi wanted it to look realistic, so he actually gave David Duchovny permission to just belt him. So I don't know if that's the take that was used. I suspect it was, but David Duchovny legitimately punched Mitch Pileggi in that hallway. Now, the other fight scene is the one between Nicholas Lee and David Duchovny outside Mulder's apartment. And the fight choreographer was sick that day. So Nick Lee and David Duchovny choreographed the fight themselves, which I thought was a nice touch. You get something that's a little more realistic. It's not this sort of perfect ballet. It does look more like the realistic fights I've seen where they're just getting in and pounding on each other. It may not look convincing to people who've had FBI hand-to-hand combat training, which these actors haven't, but it does mean that both of the fights in this are pretty realistic and they don't seem over the top or really feel particularly choreographed to me. So this is the big season finale. Next week, I will be doing the season two roundup and recap. And the week after that, we will continue with The Blessing Way, which is part two of three and introduced season three. As we continue in the coverage, I did previously mention that there is an X-Files revival coming out in January. It will be discussed. It'll be discussed after season nine and the second film, because that is the order of airing. I'm not going to discuss it early just because it's new. 
I may throw in a special when it's done just for an overall review and recap, but it won't be part of the regular sequence. I want to make sure that those who are following along in the future, and it's not necessarily what's aired last week, still get things in sequence. The exact placement will wait until I've had a chance to watch that and to read the comic book issues that are coming out for seasons 10 and 11 to figure out exactly where it's placed in the continuity. And that's where it'll be covered. So please join us next week for that season two recap. Feel free to check out Bureau 42's other shows if you're not listening with a master audio feed so you can see what other content we offer. Please rate this and all shows that you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help them build an audience and get noticed and even share links with friends who you think may be interested. And finally, thank you for listening. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Laswell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content copyright 2015, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments or feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you for listening.